Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Wednesday, April 29th. In today's news, President Trump orders meat plants to stay open, even as more become hotspots. A former reporter in China now shapes Trump's hardline stance toward Beijing. And West Point cadets are being forced to fly back to campus so they can watch Trump give a speech. It's a public health nightmare. But first, the big idea. The United States now has more than one million confirmed coronavirus infections, about a third of known cases worldwide. More than 58,000 of our fellow Americans have succumbed to this contagion. As results from antibody tests have started to trickle in, they bolster the consensus among disease experts that this virus is significantly more lethal than seasonal flu and has seeded the most disruptive pandemic in the past century. The new serological data, which is provisional, suggests that coronavirus infections greatly outnumber confirmed COVID-19 cases, potentially by a factor of 10 or more. Many people experience mild symptoms or none at all, and they never get the standard diagnostic test with a swab up the nose, so they're missed in the official case counts. Higher infection rates mean lower lethality risk on average. But the corollary is that this is a very contagious disease capable of being spread by people who are asymptomatic, a challenge for communities hoping to end their shutdowns. The crude case fatality rates covering people who have a diagnosis have been about 6% globally, as well as in the United States. But when all the serological data is compiled and analyzed, the fatality rate among people who have been infected could be less than 1%. But as infectious disease experts point out, even a seemingly low rate can translate into a shockingly large death toll if the virus spreads through a major portion of the population. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo said yesterday, that the latest antibody numbers in New York City indicate that 25% of the population of 8.8 million has already been infected. The city has recorded more than 12,000 confirmed deaths from COVID and lists another 5,000 as probable deaths. That's an infection fatality rate between 0.5 and 0.8%, depending on which death toll is factored in. A spike in all-cause deaths in recent weeks suggests that some coronavirus-related deaths have not been captured by the mortality statistics. Now, I get it. There are so many numbers flying around right now that it's understandable people may struggle to make sense of them. I do. That's become even more difficult in recent days due to a surge of serological studies that have not been peer-reviewed but are being presented to the public, typically with dramatic public health conclusions attached. But no matter how you slice and dice them, These figures are deeply sobering to infectious disease experts. This is a novel, highly infectious disease, and so everyone who hasn't had an infection is presumably susceptible. It's unclear whether and for how long a person who recovers from COVID will have immunity. Research shows that in a completely vulnerable population that takes no precautions, each infected person will infect well more than two others on average. Some estimates put that reproduction number, what scientists call the R-naught, over three. Epidemiologists have also said that somewhere between 40 to 70 percent of the American population will likely become infected in the next couple of years 
if there is no vaccine and the public does not continue to take aggressive measures to limit the spread of the virus. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this hump day. Number one, plans for a swift reopening of malls, factories, and other businesses are accelerating, but they're running headlong into the reality that persuading workers and consumers to overlook their fears and resume their roles in powering the U.S. economy will prove difficult. Late last night, President Trump issued an executive order that gives the federal government broad powers to force meat and poultry processing plants to remain open through the pandemic. This move, which is designed to avert widespread food shortages that were becoming imminent, came after the conference board reported that consumer confidence has plunged to its lowest mark in six years. After 20 meatpacking plants closed in recent weeks because of COVID-19 outbreaks, the United Food and Commercial Workers Union complained about unsafe working conditions. A worker at a Smithfield Foods plant in Missouri sued the company in federal court yesterday, saying it failed to take action to protect its employees, including altering operations to permit social distancing, providing protective gear, and encouraging sick employees to stay home. A key test of consumer willingness to brave health fears will come Friday, when Simon Property Group, the nation's largest owner of shopping malls, plans to reopen more than four dozen of them in 10 states. Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson told investors on a call yesterday that he expects to have about 90% of all the company's stores open by early June. At the White House, Trump sought to look beyond the deepening recession that economists say is pushing unemployment higher than at any time since the Great Depression. The president says July, August, and September will bring what he called a transition to a stronger rebound that he hopes will come in the weeks before he appears on the ballot in November. In the absence of any federal mandates, states are adopting varying approaches to the speed and pace of their commercial revivals. Texas is reopening restaurants at 25% capacity later this week, or at least allowing them to do so. But Olivia Wise, a 22-year-old waitress in New Braunfels, doesn't feel comfortable going back to work just yet. She lives with her parents. They're desperate for the money, but she doesn't want to get her folks sick. They've spent the past six weeks cutting down their expenses to the barest minimum. They canceled their cable. They've foregone restaurant meals, and they've done without new clothes and shoes that they had planned to buy. Two weeks after she was laid off in mid-March, her dad was furloughed from the fracking company where he's worked for years. Both are receiving unemployment checks for now, but Olivia says they're not sure how long it will be until they can work again or how long it might be until the money runs out. States like Texas and Iowa are threatening to cut off unemployment benefits for people like Olivia who can work but refuse to go back to work because they fear for their health and safety. As she told us yesterday, quote, oh crap, what do we do? Number two. In February, as Trump was projecting confidence that China's Xi Jinping had the coronavirus under control, his deputy national security advisor, Matt Pottinger, received some alarming information. The virus was spreading beyond China's borders, and so was a disinformation campaign from the Communist Party in Beijing. Chinese leaders, Pottinger believed, were engaging in a massive cover-up and a psychological warfare operation, as he called it, to obscure the origins of the virus and deflect blame. 
he urged Trump and other senior officials to brand the virus with a label so that there would be no mistaking its origins. The Wuhan virus. That's how it got Trump to call it that. And that episode illustrates the quiet but potent influence of the White House's foremost China expert, whose personal experience as a journalist in that country two decades ago for the Wall Street Journal left him deeply distrustful of the regime, and it now shapes the administration's hardline posture. Trump, who's been eager to deflect blame over his own handling of the crisis, escalated the rhetoric by using the term Chinese virus. Liberals called that language racist. To Pottinger, the critics missed the point. China's state media had named the virus for Wuhan for weeks before suddenly pressuring the World Health Organization to formally call it COVID-19. Beijing needed to own it, Pottinger believes, and he says that their handling of the virus has been catastrophic and the whole world is the collateral damage of China's internal governance problems. Now, on the China question, Trump has vacillated between the moderate views of his globalist economic advisors, including son-in-law and senior advisor Jared Kushner, National Economic Council Director Larry Kudlow, and Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin, who all favor cooperation on trade, and then the hardliners like Steve Bannon, who left in the summer of 2017 but is still close to the White House, and trade advisor Peter Navarro, who have pushed toward a decoupling of the world's two largest economies. Now, internally at the White House, the moderates are referred to as KKM for Kushner, Kudlow, and Mnuchin. They're a very powerful block, partly because one of them is the president's son-in-law, and they resist the more aggressive instincts of Pottinger and Navarro, who really is a super hawk. Pottinger definitely falls on the scale closer to the hardliners, but he's less ideological, and associates say he has a military-style respect for the chain of command. He also is content to stay out of the spotlight and careful not to upstage the bigger personalities in the West Wing. Those traits have helped him outlast three national security advisors and rise last summer to the number two position under the fourth, Robert C. O'Brien. Number three. The day before the U.S. Military Academy announced it would proceed with plans for Trump to deliver a commencement address, cadets joined a video conference call to learn about their return to the school's campus outside New York, the American city hardest hit by the contagion. The decision to hold an in-person graduation on June 13th means that nearly 1,000 graduating cadets will be forced to travel back to West Point from their homes across the country, where they have been distance learning since spring break, and undergo up to three weeks of quarantine at campus barracks and a nearby training site. But uncertainties remain, including how to ensure the cadets won't sicken one another and how to account for sometimes unreliable test results. The decision to hold the commencement ceremony as planned has generated concerns among families of cadets and graduates of the prestigious military academy. They worry the move could jeopardize the health of future Army leaders. It's also raising questions among public health experts who caution that measures to detect and isolate sick students are not fail-safe. Even as tens of thousands of military personnel take part in virus relief efforts across the country, helping to staff overwhelmed civilian hospitals and building overflow medical sites, the Pentagon has faced criticism for its handling of outbreaks on Navy vessels like the USS Theodore Roosevelt and on smaller issues like continuing to require haircuts for Marines. One issue that still hasn't been resolved by officials at West Point is whether families and friends will be allowed to attend the ceremony. Finally, let me close with today's silver lining story. 
Jen Lobach was at her Michigan home on April 2nd when COVID caused her water to break eight weeks before she was due. She and her husband, Andre, were both real sick. It was the day before his 36th birthday, and he was overcome by a violent cough, gasping for air, unable to speak. His wife decided that she needed to drive them to the hospital with him in the passenger seat, even though she was the one in labor. But while driving through their Detroit suburb, a doctor called to say that Andre had tested positive for the virus and would not be allowed in the hospital. So Jen turned the car around and dropped him off at the house. When she waved goodbye and told him she loved him, she thought it could very well be the last time they ever saw each other. She was afraid he'd die in his sleep, and he was all by himself. He was afraid she wouldn't survive labor. At the hospital, Jen gave birth to twin sons, Mitchell and Maxim. They weighed three and four pounds. Because Andre was not there, a nurse named Anne coached her as she went through her contractions all night long. Jen, who had a really hard time getting pregnant and had to do fertility treatments, told the Detroit Free Press that she prayed over and over and over again all night long, God, please let me live through this. And she did. Finally, nearly a month later, both parents have recovered from the coronavirus and were allowed to hold their babies for the first time. Now, they're bringing the boys home. It's time to be a family. And that's The Daily 202 for Wednesday, April 29th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Homan. I'll talk to you tomorrow.